Reading from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm chapter 2 is one of the famous messianic psalms. They, they call it a messianic psalm because it's a psalm that on this side of Christ, it so clearly shows who Jesus is that as we read it, we understand that the psalm is ultimately about Jesus. God describes how the king who will rule with an iron scepter, is his son. And I love that very last verse that says to you and I, blessed are all who take refuge in him. We have a good, good father. Our father in heaven His son, Jesus Christ, is the king who will one day rule. And the good news of a strong and righteous king is that one day all oppression will cease. And there is real hope for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. We anticipate and long for the day when he will return and rule in righteousness. And this morning, we are going to be in Luke chapter 2. And I want to put these two things together. The anticipation of that king that Chris just read about from Psalm chapter 2. And the coming and the birth of King Jesus. And as you go there, if you haven't turned there already, go with me to Luke chapter 2. I want to ask you a question. Because the things that we talk about from the scriptures today are directly relevant for each of us. And so some of you may come and think about God with a great burden of guilt. Some of you may feel like if you make a mistake that God no longer loves you. Some of you may feel like perhaps you can't measure up. And even within the church, we seem to be so good at putting ourselves in different classes. You know, there there are the super Christians then there are the, the kind of average Christians. And then there are the people that, that just feel like they have almost no place in the church. And that is not 
how God describes us at all. We just sang about how God is our good, good Father, and that is so true biblically. And so my prayer today is that if you come here and, and you wonder, you know, have I made a mistake that is so serious that I just am like the black sheep of God's family. My prayer for you today is that you would have real hope. This morning, I want to encourage you with this truth. Jesus is the Savior. He saves you from the guilt of your sins. He gives you hope, and He is strong, and He is able to save you. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, that Jesus, our Savior, the one who is able to save you from your sins, was born under the law to redeem those under the law. And the idea is that all of us are born with the burden of, of obeying God's commands and laws. For those who know and receive the Mosaic law, they were obligated to keep the whole law as God's covenant people. But Paul says in Romans, even if you don't know God's law, it's written on your hearts. You have a sense of there is a God, and you have a sense that there is a right and there is a wrong. And then all of us have some sense that we are all lawbreakers. And so that law that should help us obtain the blessings of God through obedience, that law, instead of being a blessing, ends up serving to condemn each of us. And the reason that Jesus Christ is our Savior is because He was born under the law. And unlike me and unlike you, He perfectly obeyed every part of the law. And this morning in Luke 2, we're going to see that that perfect obedience began even before he was old enough to know the law and to obey it himself as a man. We're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the keeping of the law and the obedience that Mary and Joseph had as they followed what God told them to do. And then we're going to see two pictures that go along with that, that as they obey, God gives them incredible, profound, and deep encouragement. So we're going to see keeping the law, then we're going to see seeing the Savior, and finally we're going to look at hoping in the future. And as we do each of those things, my prayer for you this morning is that you would have the utmost confidence in King Jesus. Both that he is the loving Savior who obeyed when you and I failed, and that he is the coming King who gives us hope in the future. So read with me this morning the beginning of our text today in Luke chapter 2. And we're just going to look at a few verses, starting in verse 22, about the keeping of the law. Scripture says, 
And when the time for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought up to, to Jerusalem, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph obey in two ways. They present Jesus to the Lord in obedience to the law of Moses, and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord also in obedience to the law of Moses. If you were here as I preached through Exodus, you may understand what's happening here. You may remember that in the moment of redemption from Egypt, God told his people to kill a lamb and to take some of the blood of the lamb and to put it on the doorposts of their houses. And he said his angel would pass over Egypt and judge the land. But when the angel saw the blood on their doors, the angel would pass over them and spare them from God's judgment so that they would be saved and they would be redeemed and they would be his people. They were saved in their obedience as they obeyed what God told them to do and sacrificed that lamb. And since that time, in Exodus, God said for every Jewish family... Israel, the whole nation, God says, is my firstborn son. And so to all of his people, as they had children of their own, they were to redeem the firstborn son because God said the firstborn is mine and belongs to me. And so what you see Mary and Joseph doing, and this is staggering, the the events that happen in Luke happen 2,000 years after the time of Moses. And I just want to say as an aside today, some people feel like it has been such a long time since Jesus was here and since Jesus ascended to heaven. 2,000 years is an enormously long time. But you know what? 2,000 years was an enormously long time for Mary and Joseph to obey a law that had been given generations and generations and generations, 2,000 years before they lived. And they were blessed in their faithfulness in seeing the promises of God fulfilled. And I want to encourage you this morning that you and I can have the same sort of blessing as we trust in the promises. Yes, it seems like a long time to us, but it's not that long in the eyes of God. And one day we will see the God that kept his promises to Israel keep his promises to his people today. So they begin by observing the Mosaic law And they redeem their firstborn son with the sacrifice of two pigeons. And and what that is, is one of them was offered for a sin offering, and one of them was offered for a burnt offering, and both of them are ways of saying, we are separated from God, and only by blood sacrifices can we come back into the presence of God. And what we will see today is that in the long term, that means at least Two things. Aside from the fact that, that Joseph and Mary are obeying the law of Moses, it means that Jesus can be our Savior for two really critical reasons. Number one, he is perfect. He perfectly kept the law from birth, 
even before he was old enough. He never had to worry like, oh no, maybe my parents messed this up. No, he was the perfect savior because God led his parents in obedience. So even when he was too young to choose to obey himself, he followed the law. And there is great continuity between what God said in the past in the Old Testament and what God did in the New Testament. The same God is at work with the same law and Jesus perfectly fulfilled it. So, so Luke shows us Jesus' perfection early in his life while he is still an infant. But there's, there's a second thing. And, and not only can we see Jesus is our Savior, he dies for our sins and rose from the dead, and that's only possible because he perfectly obeyed the law. If he had sinned, he could not be our sinless sacrifice, but he never sinned. Not only do we see his perfection there, you also see a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for you and I. God said Israel was his firstborn son, but in an even deeper and truer way, Jesus Christ is the son of God from all of eternity. And when he is dedicated to the Lord... His whole life belonged to God in a profound and a deep way, and his obedience was so perfect. Paul says in the book of Philippians, he obeyed unto death, even death, on a cross. And so the animals that were sacrificed in obedience to the law of Moses are a foreshadowing. You see at the beginning of this book what will happen at the end of this book. As the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless Lamb, who has lived a life of perfect obedience and fulfilled the entire law, then obeys to the point of death and dies so that you and I can be right with God. The Bible says, and this is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Which means that even the sacrifices that God told his people to offer under the law of Moses, they did not remove the guilt of sin. And God said that the wages of sin is death. So every animal sacrificed until the death of Christ was showing the high cost of our sin and separation from God. But it did not truly cover or remove the sin. It was just showing what needed to take place. And so when Jesus comes along, his blood does remove our sins. Scripture says we are washed in his blood. We are made clean in his blood. And so this morning, if you come and you think, you know what, I've done things that I regret, and, and I believe that all of us have. And if you think, you know, I'm kind of like a black sheep in God's family and you bear a certain amount of shame, you need to recognize God's love for you does not depend on what you've done. God's love for you depends on what Jesus did for you. And Jesus was perfect and Jesus shed his blood for you. And so that if, if you come and feel like, you know, God can't love me, ultimately what you're saying is, Jesus' blood isn't powerful enough to save someone like me. And that's not true. Jesus' blood is powerful enough. There there is nothing 
that is beyond redemption because Jesus is so perfect and Jesus is so strong. And so the first thing that we see this morning in this text is the perfect obedience to God's law that lets Jesus be our Savior. But there are two other things. Luke is telling us a story here, and he's giving us the background, and he's helping us understand who Jesus is and where he comes from. And the next stage in the story, I believe, speaks very powerfully into Mary and Joseph's life, and I think it has a lot to say to you and I. And so as they're at the temple, as they're obeying, God sends them two people to talk to, and, and they have this profound and amazing, crazy experience. And two people see the infant Christ and understand and know who he is by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so I want to read with you the first of those two instances of Simeon seeing the Savior. So read with me verses 25 through 35 and remember what's happening. They are in the temple. They are offering their sacrifices. They are being obedient. And read with me verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. means he's waiting for God to keep his promises. He's waiting for freedom and deliverance. He's hoping in the Messiah. And the scripture says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I want you to imagine this scenario with a great deal of imagination. Mary and Joseph are are a young couple. A lot of people think that Mary is probably 13 or 14 years old. That's, That's the average age that girls married back then. We're not sure how old Joseph was, but probably somewhere around the same age, maybe a little bit older because that was also very common. But But Jesus is... The baby, that that he's their first baby. You know, Joseph is not his physical father, but but he still behaves like a father to Jesus. In, in as far as like an earthly perspective is concerned, he's responsible for for watching him and for teaching him things. And and Mary is his mother in every possible sense. And they're going to Jerusalem, which is a large city. But they live in Nazareth, which is a a smaller town, and it would have taken them a few days to walk there as they obey what God told them to do in the law of Moses. And so just think for a second about being a young couple, having your first baby, and you're going out of town, and and you go, and, and 
Jerusalem is a large city, so it's a busy city. There are a lot of people there. You don't know a lot of people. You know, they may have had some family, but any given day that you go to the temple, it, it, there are just hundreds of people going through. The temple in Jerusalem was enormously busy. Thousands and thousands of people would have been there for many different reasons any given day. And as they walk in holding baby Jesus, some man that they have never seen before walks up to them and starts speaking to them about their baby with a knowledge and an insight and a wisdom as if he understands who Jesus is better than they do. I can tell you as a dad, this would have really freaked me out. I don't like the thought of some stranger coming up and and he actually takes the baby. Can you imagine someone you don't know in a town that is somewhat unfamiliar coming up to you and saying, I know who this is. I'm just going to hold your baby for just a minute. Would you let them? Would you be comfortable with that? I think you would have a sense that, that something strange is happening. And yet I believe Simeon spoke with a kind of experience that Mary and Joseph would have somewhat understood because both Mary and Joseph have had angelic visions where they know a little bit about who Jesus is. Matthew records the vision that Joseph has. They, they understand that their baby is different and special. They know, Mary, you know Joseph knows he's not the father. Mary knows that, that, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, came upon her so that the child was called the Son of the Most High, that this literally is the Son of God. And so they have an idea, but they don't know fully what that means. But they understand what it means to have been told something that no one else will believe. And so when Simeon comes and begins speaking to them about their baby, I believe that their default setting is to trust that he really is speaking truth. How else could he know, without ever having met them before, that this baby was different from any other baby at the temple that day? And so based on what God has told them, as he begins prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit, they understand this man has insight. And he says two things that I really want to highlight. He, one, you know, he, he mentions that this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is, this is bigger than just a, a Jewish Messiah. This is bigger than just a king who will rule. This is a hope that is global. But that's not even one of the two things. The, the two things that I want to point out here the things that that Simeon says are somewhat dark. They're somewhat unsettling. You don't want some stranger to come up and say, oh, what a beautiful baby, and then tell you that there's going to be political upheaval because of this baby. You you don't want him to come up and say, a sword is going to pierce your heart. Remember, Jesus is described as the Savior to Mary and Joseph. That seems like joy. What parent wouldn't want to hear that? And yet when Simeon comes, he recognizes that Jesus is the Savior. And yet he says two things that I think they never would have forgotten. And I believe that it would have actually sustained them and strengthened them. That they would have remembered this prophetic word and that it would have helped enormously in the days ahead. Simeon says that this baby is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. 
And while Jesus is the perfect Savior who dies for our sins and rises from the dead, not everyone is happy to worship him. And I believe there are two ways to understand this statement, that that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rise of many. First, it means those who are proud, those who believe that they are good, that they deserve God's blessings, those people will be angry that God tells them that they need a savior. Think for a second about people you know who don't know Christ, especially if they have it together and and they are, are doing somewhat well, and you say, you need to be saved. They look at you like you have a third eye. It seems totally unnecessary. And if you begin talking about their sins and the things that separate them from God that one day they will give an account for, very likely they will become angry and just completely dismiss you. But what, what God is saying through Simeon is that those people who are proud one day will fall because of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns and is the king that Psalm 2 describes, no one will be able to oppose him. And so those who believe that they don't need a savior will fall because of Jesus, even those who look like they've done well. Think for a second of the Apostle Paul. And now I know Paul comes to know Christ by by the mercy and grace of God, but think about how he describes himself before he's a Christian. Twice, once in Galatians and then once in Philippians, he describes his credentials as a Jew who kept the law. He says, I was flawless. He's so proud. And when he hears about Jesus, he hates him. He opposes him. He goes out of his way to persecute people that love Jesus. And yet King Jesus has none of it. And by his mercy and his grace, Jesus turns Paul 180. But not everyone is like Paul. Not everyone will believe. There are those who will maintain opposition to Christ forever, and ultimately their destruction will be eternal. That's one way that, that we can understand this. There are those who are proud who will fall. But there's a second way that this truth is appointed, and, and I don't want to neglect, he, he describes how those who are are low will be brought up. I mean, you can think of what Mary says in praising God that the humble are exalted. Those who understand their sinfulness find mercy and grace in Christ Jesus, and they are lifted up with Christ. We are exalted with him when we trust that he is the Savior. So those who don't have it together, who maybe feel a burden of sin, those who understand their need for a Savior, those people rise, while others who look like they have it together that reject the Savior fall. There's a spiritual component where those who seem like they have it together fall and those who know that they don't rise. But there's also a very literal understanding of this. So the first way to understand it is somewhat spiritual, but the second way to understand it is very literal. And when you read Psalm 2, it's talking about kings and it's talking about nations. And the Bible teaches that one day Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, he literally will be a king who literally brings every nation in the world under his rule and his kingdom will have no end. And in that time, Jesus will rescue the oppressed. 
In that time, Jesus will be the king that rules with an iron scepter. And so the way to understand this today is to prepare for that and to be ready for that. And if Mary and Joseph heard that, I think, I think they would have wrapped their heads around it and they would have thought of the Old Testament and all that God said about the Messiah. And I think they would have been encouraged. But Simeon doesn't stop there. Simeon says, not only is there going to be opposition to this little baby, and remember, he, he's only just a, a month or two old at this point. Not only is there going to be opposition to this little baby, but looking directly at Mary, he says, and a sword will pierce your heart. That the opposition that Jesus experiences is deeply personal for Mary, his mother. And I believe that, that this says a couple of things to us. In part, we need to remember that as we lean and depend on the promises of God, God is sovereign and in control. That doesn't mean that he spares us all pain. His plan is perfect. His plan for Jesus included the cross. And as Mary understood her little boy was going to be the Savior, I don't think in a million years she would have guessed that he was going to go to a cross and die. And so this word from Simeon, I believe in an incredibly profound way, as she looked at Jesus while he was dying, things like this would have come to her mind. The scripture says she treasured this into her heart, and she would have understood, and this prophetic word would have sustained her in those dark hours. One of the things I want to say to you today, brothers, is we need this kind of ministry Whereas we understand the promises of God, we need to speak into each other's lives in such a way that we encourage one another, so that we remain faithful, so that we remember the things God has said he will do in each of our lives, and we cling to them and we hold fast. Some of you need to be a simian and speak in direct ways like this. And, and brothers and sisters, when you hear someone does that for you and speaks to you in a direct way, we ought to believe them if it's biblical, and if it goes in accordance with God's word, we ought to accept that kind of encouragement. There are going to be times that we have dark days and we need the word of God spoken to us in such clear and direct ways so that we can hang on, so that we can believe. Simeon, I think, as you know, he gives the baby Jesus back to, to Joseph, Joseph and Mary, would have been a... a a little bit of a mixed bag. I think in some ways they almost would have been as confused as they were encouraged. Because there's a strange darkness mixed in with the joy and the hope. And he is profoundly happy. He's rejoicing. He's had this special promise from God that was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit has told him he would see the baby who would be the Messiah before he died, and he sees the baby, and, and God confirms in him, this is the baby. And so he's full of joy, but yet some of what he said is not what any parent would want to hear. And so before they leave, God sends them another person in the name of Anna. And Anna has profound hope for the future. So look with me at the last few verses of our text this morning. Verse 36 says this, and there was a prophetess, meaning she also speaks the word of God, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping God with fasting and prayer night and day. 
And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna, I think, is a picture of really great disappointment in one sense. When you read the bare-bones biographical details of her life, and, and people are a little bit divided. She's either 84 years old or she's possibly as much as 104 years old. We, we don't know if the 84 years is since her husband died or if she is 84 years old. Either way, she has an incredibly long life and at least 60-plus years she lived as a widow, devoted to worshiping God, fasting and praying, waiting for the Messiah. And somehow, when she sees Jesus, maybe she witnessed what Simeon had said and knew that what he said about this baby was true. Or maybe the Spirit of God confirmed in her heart that this baby was different than every other baby. And what we find is that this woman, who by all accounts should be bitter, rather than being defined by her loss as a widow, is full of radical, incredible joy in confidence that God will bless her through this baby and the entire nation and the entire world. It's really ironic that an old lady who had lived as a widow for so many years is so full of thankfulness. Think for a second about you and I. If you have ever faced disappointment, even small disappointments can put you out of joint for weeks or months or years. And yet this woman had confidence in God and so she was full of thankfulness. And I want to encourage you that I believe this kind of thankfulness comes from resting in the promises of God in a very personal way. She had faith in Christ without even fully knowing what Jesus would one day ultimately do. And I believe if Simeon and Anna have this kind of amazing joy, only knowing in part who Jesus was, how much more should you and I have confidence, knowing that our sins are fully paid for, that they are forgiven in Jesus' name because of the blood of Jesus. How much more should you and I have joy? Remember the words of Jesus when when he says to his disciples, you know, you guys have had amazing ministry success, and I know you're excited, but, but that's not what you should rejoice about. He says, you should rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you are welcomed into God's people by the blood of Jesus. The default setting for a Christian ought to be joy, no matter what your life has been like. And some people I know in our church, and I know I I am guilty of this as well, become defined by disappointment and bitterness and frustration and difficulty and lose sight of the fact that God's plan never fails. And so what I want to say to you this morning is really two things. Number one, Jesus is the perfect Savior. You you read verses 39 and 40. says, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they left nothing undone. They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew 
and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That, that just highlights and brings into focus. This text is about Jesus. Jesus is the one that gives us this kind of confidence. But, but Anna and Simeon both give us beautiful pictures of how deep that confidence can be. That no matter what your disappointment is, no matter what your gripe or what your complaint is, that you can be defined by joy in Christ Jesus. So my question for you this morning is how much joy do you have? How much confidence do you have that your sins are forgiven? Does that, is that a source of joy for you? If you've come, like I said at the beginning, with a sense of guilt, with a burden, my prayer for you today is that you would move your focus off of your failures and on to the perfect obedience of Christ. That you would find encouragement and joy in what Jesus has done for you with such incredible perfection. I want to urge you to live in hope of that and to have confidence in his return. To pray for it. To be like Anna. To encourage each other as you wait for Christ. And to tell other people about the saving. You Think of Anna and, and she says that, that she told all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She couldn't keep quiet. And it's my prayer that you and I would not be able to keep quiet about our hope in Christ either. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we have heard from your word about our great Savior. We've seen examples of incredible faithfulness and obedience Now may your spirit be at work in us in the same way it was at work in Anna and in Simeon. May you strengthen us when we are weak. May you give us hope when we are discouraged. May you give us forgiveness when we fail. And I pray that you would fill us with joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.